0: John Piper, in his book, This Momentary Marriage, has this as his opening line. There has never been a generation, there's never been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. There's never been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. We can take from that at least two things. One, that marriage is good and glorious. There is a high view required. And two, this generation in which we live is not the problem. Pause on that for a second. Because we tend to think it is. The reality is that there has never been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. So does that mean that God has nothing to say to our generation? Well, the answer is the opposite. He has something to say to every generation about marriage. In Hebrews chapter 13, the author to Hebrews says this. He says, let marriage be held in honor by all. That's a noble endeavor. To let marriage be held in honor by all. There's different ways then that we can think, well, as Christians, we should pursue that. And so much of the energy, so much of the passion of of the pro-marriage cause from religious circles often ends up as something not that different than the plans of the world to try to bring change. It's petitions and... We'll have our own parades and and we'll try to right the government and lobby the government and get laws to change and these kinds of things. But what we really need is what the author of Hebrews says next. Let marriage be held in honor by all. How are we going to do that? How is a Christian responsible to help marriage be held in honor by all? He says, let the marriage bed be kept pure. In other words, the primary goal for Christians if we're trying to influence the world, if we're trying to be salt and light in a world of decay and darkness when it comes to marriage is to rightly prioritize the purity and the beauty of marriage in our own thoughts, in our own marriages, in our own church communities such that it will shine like lights in the darkness and that other people will begin to see that's why marriage should be held in honor by all Because they see its beauty and the priority and the passion that we have for it. But that means, and this is where it gets a little harder than just writing petitions, we have to live it. My goal for this morning as we think about the very first passage in Scripture on marriage is that we would not first and foremost spend time saying okay here's some application for husbands and here's some application you know here's some things a wife should go do and and here's something for singles and for widows and and, and kind of go through piece by piece but but rather that if we establish the fountainhead of the the beauty and the truth and the value of marriage as it is then the cascading implications will become apparent such that the applications will flow into your own life from the fountainhead of truth what I I want to do is start simply by talking about how do we think about, how do we conceive of marriage as that which is valuable and beautiful. I want to correct the conceptions that are out there of marriage, realign them to the word, and trust that the implications will fall where they may. And I want to try to do that under three headings to reorient again our, our orientation around marriage. The first heading is simply this. Marriage is God's. This is the first thing that we cannot miss from Genesis chapter 2 is that marriage is God's. And this matters, right? When I say it's God's, what I mean is he possesses it, he owns it, it belongs to him. And establishing possession is really important. Like, if you want to figure out who has the right to do something with something. So I have some friends and they have a cottage and... Um, at, at their cottage it's it's a nice property it's on the water but there's like a there's a driveway that they use and park in and all this kind of thing, and in reality, don't tell the city this, but the town actually owns it. It's a roadway, but the town forgot about it. It got like left off their maps, so now the town has just kind of abandoned it, and my friends have just sort of inherited it, so now they've got it as their driveway, when in reality, if the town knew, there'd be all kinds of things they'd want to do, maybe build a, a, a launch for their boat, for people, public access to the beach, whatever it is, but as it is, as long as the town doesn't know they own it, they won't do anything with it it. What I'm saying is this, God owns marriage. The only one who has the legal authority to do anything with it, to define it, to change it, to modify it, to establish it, is the one who owns it. So when we say God owns marriage, I want to try to bring clarity to that. First of all, I think it's important to try to define terms as well. So when we're talking about marriage, what is it that we're talking about? Our statement of faith says this. So if you're a member of the church, you're familiar with this, you've heard this taught on already, you've read it, you've committed to this as part of your commitment to the church, our statement of faith says this. Adam and Eve were made to complement each other in a one-flesh union that establishes the only normative pattern of sexual relations for men and women such that marriage ultimately serves as a type, a, a pattern, let's think prototype, a picture of the union between Christ and his church. That says a lot of things. Let's, let's try to narrow it down. Another way we could maybe think about marriage is this. Marriage is the work of God. The work of God in unifying A man and a woman created in his image into one flesh. Man in his image, woman in his image. God unites the two of them into one flesh for the establishment of his reign, the expression of his covenantal love, and the projection of his glory on earth. That again says a lot of things. We're going to unpack that as we go. Don't worry. Because the idea of marriage belonging to God's, belonging to God, is so foreign to us, I want to take some time and try to argue that with you from the text of Genesis chapter 2 in sort of two movements here. The first one is this, marriage is God's, marriage is not ours, it belongs to him because we are in his image. We're the ones created as his image here on earth. This is the underlying reality that we've already seen from Genesis 1, as we've thought about what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God, created in for for right relationship with him and then rulership over his creation. We're supposed to reflect him and show all of creation what he is like. That means we do not have the right to project anything from our lives that's different than what the God who created us designed us for. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And remember, then there's the creation. So God created them, and then the blessing. And the creation is expanded on in two parts. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he gives them two commands flowing out from the blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's one. Subdue it and have dominion. That's the other. The subduing and having dominion is bound up with the image and likeness. And the being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth is bound up with being male and female. So from the very beginning, when God deliberates, when God considers, what am I doing when I'm creating humanity? He creates us in his image, specifically male and female, for a purpose to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Long before the word marriage ever exists in the text, God has designed us as male and female to function in this way to be my image bearers we're going to rule over my creation they're going to need to be fruitful and multiply they have to fill it if they're going to rule how are they going to fill it let's make them male and female but how will male and female multiply be fruitful and multiply i mean this is because it's not defined here yet right so is it just like every male wandering around finding any female they can just be fruitful and multiply well no god's creation is ordered and so he's going to bring order to this relationship of male and female as well. So, so marriage is God's because we, in his image and likeness, are his. Our masculinity and our femininity, our maleness and our femaleness belong to him. And the expression of them belong to him. But secondly, marriage is not ours. Mar- marriage is God's because it's his invention. We're his image, and marriage is his invention. You ever see someone falling asleep? when they shouldn't be falling asleep, like maybe watching a TV show or something anyway you got, so you got one of those people in your home someone that's like watching let 's watch a show and then they like just fall asleep and then and then inevitably you get that moment where like something loud happens or someone jumps out or something happens in the show and they're like oh and they, that moment where they startle awake and they 're like oh that's crazy right like they, they're pretending like they know what that happened in any of your home is that just me maybe it's just me anyway, you know that moment when someone's falling asleep maybe you see it on the TTC and then they, they startle and they wake up if you're falling asleep in the creation narrative there is a word here that is given to you to startle you awake you're supposed to sit up and take notice and it happens in Genesis 2 verse 18 Yahweh God said this it is not good (laughs) it's not good think about where we've been right Genesis 1 Day 1, it was good. Day 3, it was good. It was good. Day 4, it was good. Day 5, was good. Day 6, it was good. It was very good. Seven times we've heard God say, it was good. It was good. It was good. And now all of a sudden, in the middle of all of this, in, in, in now we've gone back into day 6 when God is creating, male and female. And, and, and what does he say when he looks at Adam who is alone? He says, it's not good. This is supposed to startle us. How can something be not good in God's creation that is good? It's not good that a man should be alone. God identifies the problem. It's not good that man should be alone. The problem, people try to interpret this problem in all kinds of ways. The problem not psychological, right? It's not that he needed a best bud um, or God could have just you know, given him another man. It's not that he needed help plowing the fields. God had already given him like oxen and cattle and all kinds of things, like animals, horses that that he could use for plowing the fields. The male needs a female in order to become one flesh and image the God fully whose likeness they were created in so that they would be fruitful and multiply I'll make a helper fit for him, God says. He gives the problem. He also gives the solution. And verse 20 repeats that phrase, right? A a helper fit for him. A, A helper corresponding to him. Literally a helper opposite to him. One who will stand mirror image to him. One who corresponds to him. And really, in verse 18 and verse 20, it kind of brackets this little narrative. And, and I love picturing the way this plays out. Because, okay, God says to him, hey, uh, you know, it's not good that you should be alone. And, and Adam's like, okay. And so, so God's like, let's look for a helper for you. I've made all these animals. And so he starts bringing all the animals to Adam and like all the different animals of the field are passing in front of him. And Adam's given names to them. He's calling one this and one that. And, and then they, it's, the picture is basically they've all passed through and then God's like, okay, any of them good? <laughs> like I'm not gonna marry the sheep. Like what am I the, the The picture is he's suppo- is supposed to be building a sense of desperation, an awareness of what he's lacking, an awareness of what it is that he's looking for in this wife that he does not have. And many of us have gone through that personally too, right? Like not with actual animals, but I mean like just, you, you've, been, you've been looking and as the time goes on, you're like, man, there is no one. Like where's, where's the one corresponding to me? And, and it builds, it builds the longing, right? And so God reminds him again at the end of verse 20, here's the problem. There's still no helper. So the solution, the solution comes, verse 21. Notice who it is who invents The answer. So Yahweh, God, caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. This isn't isn't like what happens to most of us men as we get older. We just randomly fall asleep. God caused this deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while the man slept, Yahweh took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, Yahweh made into, I, I love the word that he uses here. I don't know why. It's, it's the word built. Yahweh built the woman out of the man's rib. I love that. Um, he built her into a woman and Yahweh brought her to the man. He's the one with the idea, the one with the solution, the one who puts the man to sleep, the one who takes the rib, the one who builds the woman, the one who prepares her, the one who brings the woman to the man. Just like he brought all the animals in front of the man, now he brings the woman so that the man can see, yes, yes, anyone with eyes can see, this is, this is what I was looking for. And it's good. Marriage is about two of his image bearers engaging in his invention, To solve the problem that he had identified to fulfill his purposes for his creation. That's why marriage belongs to God. It's all his, like we are all his. Okay, okay, so so far... We're so, so far, we're just talking about things before creation, and, or, or rather, before the fall, before things got really bad. But that's, does that still inform how we're supposed to think about marriage now? Yes, here's the second thing that I think is so important for us to get our head around. Marriage is God's, but here's the reality. It's good. It's good. It remains good Now again, I'm laboring for clarity here, so I'm defining things maybe more than I would usually do. Clarity is key here. I'm not saying your marriage is good. I'm not intending that as an insult. I'm just being honest. In a room this size, there are some marriages that are very unhealthy. Uh, I'm not saying your parents' marriage was good. You may have grown up in a fundamentalist type home where they pretended outwardly like marriage was good, but inwardly it was a disaster, and now you're jaded to marriage. I'm not saying that marriage was good. I'm not saying an abusive marriage is good such that you should stay in it. I'm saying that the institution of marriage as God has designed it and gifted it to humanity is good. Of course, as we've already hinted at, it would be easy to see why we would think it's not, right? We live this side of the fall, this side of sin, this side of death. And in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, the the, the curse is being pronounced, and God is saying, this is the state in which you're now going to have to live. Genesis 3 verse 16, he says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you in, in essence what god is doing is he's saying you have messed up the order of male and female how you're designed to function in the temptation and in the fall and now that's going to be ratified built into fallen creation such that the two of you who were supposed to be opposite to one another in a way that fit now you'll be opposite to one another in your desires so the woman desiring to overrule the man and the man in frustration and sometimes in abuse as History testifies we'll rule over the woman with an iron fist, using his strength as opposed to his love to lead his family. And we've seen this. And it's given us, in some sense, all the ammo we need to lobby against marriage. So much of our society has turned against marriage because they've seen the fulfillment of Genesis 3.16. They've seen the brokenness and the suffering and the pain of it. And so they want to reject it outright. And yet, as humanity, we still long. Like, try finding a movie with no romance we long for romance, we long for sex, we long for marriage, we long for children, we long for grandchildren. All of this still persists in the heart of humanity. Marriage is good. It's good, first of all, because it expresses the goodness of God's design. It expresses the goodness of God's design. It's as if somehow, amidst all the rubble of fallen creation, we in marriage unearth an artifact of God's initial design that remains good. Genesis 2 and verse 23 then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What what is he trying to do in this moment? He's trying to express with words, with song, something of the oneness for which we were created, the closeness for which we long, the same substanceness that happens in marriage that we just don't have words for and cannot be and will not be replicated in any other human relationship. Only this relationship is designed to be procreative so that the fruit of love would be the giving forth of life, the wonder and the mystery that we could be so different, so different, and somehow one flesh. Verse 24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Flesh. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is really bad style. Like if Moses were here, you could crit- you could criticize him, and scholars have criticized, um, you know, literary style here. If you're doing a narrative, you're not supposed to interject in the narrative. Like this is this is bad form. This is not what you're supposed to do in this particular literary genre. So like imagine, um, imagine if you're watching an Avengers movie and you know Thor is flying out of the sky or something, and then and then he's whipping his hammer around and he throws it, and and then, and then, and then all of a sudden you know well picture like back in the day when Stan Lee was still alive and Stan Lee shows up in the movie and he's just like now just so you guys know the background here is that that Thor has this hammer and and he starts explaining. it's like that would be like you're supposed to know that from the story if the story's told well you shouldn't have to interject and start saying it in the middle of the story right so so in the next chapter. Or in chapter 4, even, when Lamech, for example, begins to take multiple wives and swear vengeance on his enemies, you're supposed to pick up from the narrative that this has gone horribly wrong and that this is a horrible dude. But there's no interjection. There's no comment. There's no narrator interjecting to say, oh, and by the way, this means this. You're supposed to pick up on that in narrative. But here, it's, it's like if there was bold print, underlining, highlighting, whatever, this is what Moses is trying to get across. Of all the things in creation, this is what he wants to highlight as exceptional. This is the thing that you must see, that must continue, that we must cling to. He interjects, therefore, guys, don't miss the moral of the story. I know I'm still telling the story, but don't miss the moral. This is the way it should be. A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they should become one flesh. This is paradigm setting no matter what comes. Don't miss it. It's God's good design. Marriage is good because it reflects the goodness of God's design. Here's the second reason it's good. Marriage is good because it enables us to fill and rule. We've already seen this, right, in the very design of male and female. And now God is bringing them together in marriage union for this to take place. So going all the way back to the 1549 version of the Book of Common Prayer. Okay, I've updated the language a little bit. But it says this, historically, Christians have understood this. One cause of the origin of marriage was the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord and the praise of God. For us to fulfill our purpose as humanity, filling the earth and ruling over it, we get married and have children. And that's part of God's good design. Now, um, I want to pause for a moment because there's all kinds of ways that you could hear that and you could be responding differently in your own heart. I want to make clear that the notion that the marriage union is the place where children should be born does not mean or does not speak to the value or validity of children born out of a marriage union. Children who are created in the image and likeness of God, some of whom are my favorite people in the universe. Who are precious. Some of us here have had children out of marriage. You need to know that your children are precious and loved and created with dignity and honor in the image and likeness of God. This is not an unforgivable sin. Satan would love to take this truth that we are designed for marriage of male and female in order to have children and work all kinds of negative things in our hearts so that if you were born out of wedlock, you might say, well, forget this whole design. I don't like God's design. Or maybe if you get pregnant while a member of a church and a professing believer, you might think, if this is what Christians think, then I need to either leave the church or abort my child. That is a lie from Satan. Some of you might think, well, if, 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 if what the Bible teaches... Is that it's supposed to be about husband and wife, mom and dad, and kids. If I'm a single dad or if I'm a single mom, there's no place for me in the church. That also is a lie from Satan. Some of you are in marriages where you are not able to have children for whatever reason. And you might think that your marriage, therefore, is meaningless or empty or fruitless. Friend, this also is a lie. From Satan. But none of these things invalidate the reality, the truth, and the beauty of the norm that God has created us, male and female, to be married and to be fruitful and to multiply in order to fill and rule as a reflection of his good design. But here's, here's the third reason why I'm arguing that marriage is good from this text. It's this. Marriage is good because it exposes us to covenantal love covenantal love. I want to say love because initially, like the first response of Adam, when when Eve walks up to him, he breaks out into song. And now like some of us are more singers than others of us, but almost none of us are going to just randomly start singing except if we're in love. Like if, if the woman appears and you just start singing, that's a pretty good indicator you're in love, right? First thing, he breaks into song. There's passion, there's fulfillment, there's joy in this moment. They are naked and unashamed and they're supposed to make babies. This is is love. They're one flesh united together. This is love. But I don't want to just say love. I want to say covenantal love. Why? Well, because it's love with commitment, especially this side of the fall into sin where we're surrounded by brokenness. A covenant promises faithfulness, enduring love in the midst of opposition and hardship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this um, in a letter from prison to some folks who were getting married. He said, marriage is more than your love for each other. It's more than your love for each other. It's not less than your love. He's not saying you shouldn't love each other. You should love each other. There should be love. But it's more than just that. In your love, he says, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. That's an experience internally and shared with the other person. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. That's, that's what we've seen already, right? We're created in His image and likeness. We're at a post with a responsibility to the rest of creation. Your love is your own private possession. But marriage is more than something personal. It's a status and an office Here's his analogy. Just as it is the crown, not merely the will to rule, that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. So so you can like want to rule all you want, but that doesn't make you a king. You have to actually be in the office. And you can say you love each other all you want, but it's entering into the office, into the status, into the covenant, in the presence of God and man, making covenantal vows to one another that makes you married in the sight of God, such that this covenant that you have entered into becomes the house in which love lives and flourishes and is multiplied. So that when the wife rises up against the husband in opposition to him, like Genesis 3 says, will happen, the husband has a glorious opportunity to overlook the offense. To cover a multitude of sins with love. When the husband is rude or harsh with the wife, she has the immense privilege of reflecting the covenantal love of God to her husband. This is how we reflect our God in our marriages. Do you remember when, um, when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34? And he declares his name before him. Moses, you need to know who I am. As I'm establishing this covenant with you, and I'm writing this covenant on tablets of stone, you need to know who I am and what my name means. This is what's on my heart. Exodus 34, verse 5. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. What does he abound in? What abounds? What fills up? What overflows? What virtue? What characteristic? What attribute? Overflows from the heart of our God. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is how our God keeps covenant in love and faithfulness. And you know, when Jesus appears in John chapter 1, and John's reflecting on Jesus' appearance and, and how no one's ever seen God, but God, God the Son is, has made him known. The Word has made him, made him known. This is how he describes Jesus revealing the glory of God. John chapter 1 and verse 14 He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of, full of abounding in grace and truth. And this is for language nerds. Those are the words that translate the Old Testament words for steadfast love and faithfulness. The same heart of God that's manifest in the old covenant is the same heart of God that's manifest in the covenant love of Jesus. It fills and overflows from the character and the heart of Christ. Our God, in whose image we are made, is a covenant-keeping God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he puts us in marriage where the other person sins and says, what will you show? What will you reflect? Marriage exposes all of us to the opportunity to show covenantal love. It also exposes the world to the reality of covenantal love when they see it modeled in our marriages. What a privilege then. How fully human in these glorious moments when your spouse sins against you to be able to show steadfast love and faithfulness and know in that moment you are functioning as the image and likeness of God to your spouse and beyond. Marriage marriage is God's. Marriage is good. Here's the last category for us this morning. Marriage is glorious. And you say, "Man, that sounds a lot like good." <laughs> You just said good. you spent a long time talking about good. Why do you have to talk about glorious? Well, when we speak of something being good, what I mean is I'm speaking of the thing as it is. When I talk about it being glorious, I'm talking about what it shines forth, what it shows, what it puts on display. One is about its propriety. It is good. The other is about its beauty, what it shows. Marriage is glorious because, here's why. it exhibits Christ in the church. See, thousands and thousands of years later, after countless sins and perversions of marriage and offenses in marriage, after divorce and polygamy and incest and all manner of rape and brokenness in humanity, the Apostle Paul, who himself was likely divorced, could still say marriage is glorious. How? Ephesians 5 and verse 31 says this: Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hey, that's our text! That's from Genesis 2. That's the part that Moses was bolding and highlighting. And Paul picks up on it thousands of years later. And he says this, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why? Why did God, through Moses, highlight that statement? Because the design of God the Father that's recorded by the inspiration of God the Spirit is pointing us to the ultimate revelation of God the Son of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. It refers to Christ and the church. Why is marriage worth fighting for? Why is it sought by people through all history and every culture? Why is it so built up in the mythology of our romances? Because it is designed for glorious purposes. It is about our deepest longing and our deepest joy to be fully known and fully loved and fully united in covenant such that we would become one with the lover and the beloved, that we would be one. Ephesians 5, again, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's here's the story we're longing to reenact. Here's, Here's the roles we've been cast to play. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, In loving her, he sanctifies her, he washes her, that she might be presented to himself and that the two two might be one. If you peel back all the layers of human existence, all the layers of our longing, we'll find that our desire to be seen and known and loved and cherished and prized and adored is at the heart of all of it. It reflects a longing to be part of the bride, known and seen and loved, celebrated, sung over and cherished by the groom. Marriage, marriage is glorious because it exhibits Christ in the church. And lastly, marriage is glorious because it embodies our longing for the end longing for the end. Here's a familiar passage. We've read it before. We'll read it again because we need to have our hearts fixed here if we're going to remain faithful. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. New creation because the old one was messed up. So do we start with a new metaphor, a new image? Do we find something all new because the last one was broken? No, he goes right back to it. Nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is what we are waiting for. Whether we identify it, whether we can put our finger on it or not, it is this moment that we are anticipating in all of our longings, so that every time a bride walks down an aisle to a groom, Every time a husband sacrifices himself for his wife. Every time a wife shows love and faithfulness to her husband. Every time a husband and wife function together with oneness of mind in the mundane decisions they have to make every single day. Every close sexual encounter of a husband and wife. All of it embodies our longing for the end. For you who are single, because I know that most of you, at least the ones who I've talked to, are not passionate to remain single, but do have a longing to be married. Understand, my friend, the longing is not evil, it's good. And no matter what this life brings, there will be no joy that you are longing for in your impulses to marriage that you will not taste fully when we as the bride are given to the true groom. There will never be a moment in all eternity when you look back and say, yeah, I just wish I had been married, though. Not because the satisfaction will be less, but because it will be more, more than you could have ever dreamed. All of this embodies the reality, the longing that we were created for oneness and it is found in the union of Christ and his bride. The good news, my friends, is that the end is coming. The day is coming when there will be no more generations to doubt the goodness and the glory of marriage whose general view of marriage will not be high enough but we will all see, all of us, that is good and is glorious. It's God's design and the satisfaction of our longings. Let's pray.